Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge program. The Fatherhood Challenge is a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability of an environment and culture. We're going to encourage and challenge each other to step up and do courageous things that make our families and communities better places. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the last episode, part one, which was called Who Are You? We will continue with part two with Ed Dickerson and Joshua Hester. It's really interesting because I think sometimes when we're angry, the purpose of our anger is to get some kind of a reaction. In other words, we want to make something move or something change in what we're trying to do. Well, the previous way isn't going to work. So maybe if I do it this way, then I might get something to change. And it's really interesting because I think a father is so influential there to be able to jump in there and model and teach that, no, there is, there are more ways, there are other ways to make things move besides anger or besides just blunt force. Well, yeah, but they're both, what you're describing is also an impulse to act. Let's, let's see, let's try this. Let's do something. Uh, I think of the, the scene in Apollo 13 where they, uh, you know, they're stranded in the, in space and the two of them begin fighting over whether, when he flipped the switch that caused the explosion, whether he did it right. And uh, the guy who plays uh, Jim Lovell says, look, we can bounce off the walls in here for 10 minutes, but we're still going to be in exactly the same place where we were. And that's a, that's an example of a father figure saying, yeah, we can we can work off all this mm-hmm. this aggression we're feeling, but we'll still be in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of space, and uh, in this dire problem, and we'll waste that much time and that much oxygen. Yeah, mm. yeah, that makes me think of so like the whole idea of catharsis theory, like if mm. you get mad, like punching a pillow, you know, um, it does it does like deal with that built up steam, right? But it doesn't actually deal with whatever you're feeling, and then it it actually is like exercising that muscle for anger. So in the end you end up just being better at getting mad. Well, um, it, it's finding, it's finding an appropriate way to express the energy that, that uh, the anger yeah. gives us. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, it, it may not be perfect, but it certainly is better than, uh, than hitting people. Yeah. I can agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> or breaking. I, I used to, when, when my wife and I went through counseling and I won't go into those details, but, uh, I had some anger and uh, we were still burning wood at the time. And, and uh, I found that splitting wood was really, uh, really helpful to deal with some of these issues. Uh, when I, you know, if I was really angry at, at somebody, I pictured their face on the piece of wood. And uh, <laughs> I, I really liked it when, if sometimes when you split wood, it just splits and flies. And then some, sometimes one piece sits there and twirls around for a while before it falls. I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> watch it fall slowly yeah guilty you know it's a uh, guilty pleasure here yeah well i i you know ed it makes me think of something let me know what you think so you know i'm sure you've heard of maybe you haven't but jordan peterson and oh, he yeah. has a lot of so you know whatever people think of him there's something he says that i think is genius um he talks about how like it's not virtuous to be harmless um, that right. instead a man should want to become a monster or like powerful and then and then learn to put it under your subject like your own control right um like you think of 
you know, a warrior who's like so well trained that he doesn't need to fight the random guy at the bar because he knows he could take care of it. And he has that self-control where he's not going to even get into the fight there. Are, you know, there, every group of people has issues, but I think a lot of um, Christians take Jesus's harmless, his, um, his patience oh, yeah. and his love as like harmlessness where we need to just let people run us over. But that's not what Jesus did. He had a bigger plan and he defeated that same evil by self-control and, and, you know, he happened to throw people out of the sanctuary with whips, you know? <laughs> so no, um, absolutely. I, this is really an important thing that you're talking about here, because what really happened is, and there's this famous hymn, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He was like a little child. And of course, the basic point of that was to make uh, Victorian children obedient, yeah. to make them meek and mild. But yeah, you've seen the meme probably on Facebook that says, you know, it says, be like Jesus that can include tipping over tables and, and using a whip of cords. It's like the people who I'm most scared of are like the, you know, because I'm a classic guy talking with my friends, you know, and they're like, do you think you could take that guy? And if it's like somebody who's about my size and like he's a he's actually a fighter, then it's like I think about it and maybe, and then maybe I would fight him. Um, but then if it's like some kind of twisted kind of figure guy and – I know that he doesn't know how to fight, but I know he wants to win. I don't want to get in a fight with that guy because he he might do he's not gonna fight honorably. He's gonna, you know, pull out something or you know what I mean? And so um Well, I do know what you mean. The first year that I taught, uh I was nineteen years of age, long story, but I was teaching, and I had a fourteen year old eighth grader, big kid, almost as big as I was. And he was very destructive and very disobedient. And I was in charge, of course, keeping him under control. And uh, I was pretty good at it. But uh, toward the spring of the year, that school year, he pulled a knife on me. Okay, so I, I mean, when you mentioned this thing, it's like, can you take him? And what I did was I looked him in the eye and I said, I can take that from you if I have to. I'm not a fighter. I just, I don't, I don't, I think I've been in two fights in my life physically. I'm not a fighter, but I'm a big guy. But he looked at me and, and I, people have asked me, you know, how did, why, what happened? Well, what happened was he started almost to cry and turned the knife around and handed me the handle. And why did he do that? Because he saw in my eyes that I was willing to do whatever it took to get that knife from him. It was mm -hmm. seeing determination and he wasn't determined to do whatever it took to keep it. That's part of what you're talking about, Josh. It's about yeah. the will. It's about the will to use power, not necessarily having to use it. And that's the, this is something that Peterson is also very good about. And that, that's, this is the whole point of, of having a defense department or something else is the idea of being stronger than the bullies in the world is not because you want to bully them, but so they'll know better than to mess with you. Ed, you talk so much about your, about your father and, yeah. uh, and the, all those stories and that you've told about him and the way you've described him, it just makes him into this person that I feel bad that I never got to meet him because I would, I would have loved to have met him. And well, you know, I the way you about talk about him is really interesting because the way, and when you, we get specific about how you talk about him, Incidentally, I see a lot of the same things in you in some ways that externally, I wonder if other people see the same thing. In other words, it's almost as if part of your identity is found in him as well. Well, it's interesting because my sister, who does not always find me to be uh, a paragon of virtue, 
told me one time that, that the verse in the Bible that says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. She uh, thinks of that when she sees me. And that's about the highest compliment I can be paid. My father had had his faults and I, you know, I was a teenager. I was 24 years of age when he died. So I was quite aware of his faults. You know how teenagers are. He was just, he, he was a nurturer. He knew how to do this. He knew how to, to bring out the best in people. Uh, I usually tell this story. When my father died, the lady at the fruit market cried. Oh, wow. I, he saw her twice a week, you know, and he'd go to this fruit market down the street and he'd buy some fruit there. And, and but she cried because dad was just one of those guys that uh, had the ability to, to make friends and to, to bring, I just, there's sort of a warm glow surrounding him. Now I have to tell you, there's one way in which he was much better than I am. And that is if he were alive today, uh, he would have my grandkids, his great grandkids, all over him all the time, just because they were attracted to him. And I don't—I have my mother's uh, charm when it comes to that. She was kind of standoffish, uh, and it's, it kind of—it's it's something I wish I was better at. But yeah, Dad was a—he was a, a very nurturing kind of guy. The way you described him, I still see a lot of a lot of you, or a lot of him in you. Just from the way you've described him, Josh, it seems the same way with you. You've talked about your father a lot, and it's very clear you look up to him, and it's very clear that he's played a role, a very big role in defining who you are now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can agree with Ed talking about his dad that I, I know the faults of my dad. Um, but like I always tell people that when I – like if you've seen any – thing good in me it's probably because of him i literally I'll second can't that. Uh, what was that i'll second that i mean i, I, you, I feel exactly the same way yeah well it's like there's no there's no question like i can't even imagine myself having not known him mm-hmm. because like the my love for adventure and my love for new knowledge mm-hmm. and all of the any of the good traits about my character my even the ability to control my anger at all like which we mentioned before it's like i I don't even, I've learned how to play guitar and piano. I've learned how to paint. I've learned how to uh, understand the Bible, literally all because of him, just those things, you know, and imagine, I can't imagine myself without those things. And he never claimed to be perfect, but he, he, he gave himself, he still does. He gives himself so fully to his family. Um, And that's, you know, when I was getting married, I was thinking, man, like if I can be half the husband that my dad has been to my mom. It's like, I'll be, I'll be doing great. It's like, there's no question, you know? So yeah, I, I could talk hours about him. He's, he's one of the best men I've, he is probably the best man I've ever known. And I know him really well. He, he told me one time that the, the way to measure success, or at least a way is if the people who know you the best love you the most. Amen. And I think on that level, my dad is very successful. I have a really uh, pertinent story to share here because my wife grew up in an abusive uh, situation. Her father abused her, and she was then raised by her aunt and uncle, and her her uncle was an abusive man. There was a lot of physical abuse and some sexual abuse. There's a lot of stuff going on, and she grew up with that. And uh, I remember when I, when we told her mother that we were getting married, her mother spent 10 minutes or so telling me she would never respect a man who beat a woman, which to me was like, why are you telling me this? Well, my wife will tell you, she said this uh, openly, 
that because of the, her background, she spent the first two years of our marriage trying to, to bait me into hitting her. Mm. Because the only way she could know she was safe was if she could, you know, if she could do the utmost and still not get me to hit her. Well, I never hit her, but I want to, I want to, the point I'm making here is not about my virtue. My point is that my father and my mother fought. You know, if two people uh, lived together for any, any length of time, and maybe Josh, I don't know how long you've been married, but um, the honeymoon does end. And <laughs> sometimes you have uh, uh, someone said it allowed, allowed disagreements from time to time. I think it was Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, who said, we never fought, but we had some loud disagreements. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but when that happened with my parents, my dad would go be silent or he would go for a walk or there were three or four things that he would do. But hitting my mother was something I never saw. Mm -hmm. I don't think it ever happened. I'm, in fact, I'm sure it didn't happen. But my point is, I didn't hit my new wife, even though she was trying to get me to, not because I was some paragon of virtue, but because I was modeling my father and it wasn't on the list. You know what I'm saying? There yeah, was A, there was B, there was C, but none of those was hit your wife. Yeah. And you had all these other ways to deal with it. You know, you were well, talking Well, they weren't about necessarily good. I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. am saying that, that it's just simply that it wasn't one of the things you did. And nobody ever said that to me. You just, it's just, you get it by osmosis. You get it through example. It's really interesting because I keep thinking as I'm listening to this, that we do both sides of that spiritually. There's the side of us where uh, we are in a position of power where, yeah, potentially you could do a lot of damage, but you have this connection with your heavenly father and there's these precepts, there's these guidelines, there's these commandments and these codes of behavior that define how you're supposed to act and what your father approves of and what he doesn't. And even he's God himself, he can do whatever he has ultimate power to do enormous good, or if he wanted to even enormous damage, but he is this measured controlled way that he does things. And he never usurps his full power. There's this self-control that he models himself and that he also expects of us. Well, On the flip side, there's the other side of that coin where we are the ones that are spiritually and how we act trying to say, you know, well, come at me, come at me, come at me. And we're trying to see just how far we can push things. Oh, yeah. And the answer we yeah. get that shocks us. And, and there's something beyond that, although it's, it's inherent in what you were talking about, and that is that God says he'll write the, these laws on our hearts. And mm. see, the reason I didn't hit my wife wasn't because there was a rule book that I referred to. It's because it was written into my being. Yeah. That makes sense to you? By your heavenly father and your earthly father. Well, by my, primarily, I mean, first of all, by my earthly father. It would have, if my earthly father had hit my, hit my mother, it would have taken a lot of work by my heavenly father to undo that. That's very, very true. How do you see it, Josh? Well, I was just thinking, you know, the idea of, you know, not needing to like have a written out rule. I will not hit my wife, period. You know, that wasn't written down anywhere. Um, and nobody had to like walk behind Ed saying, you better not hit your wife. Don't hit exactly. your wife. You know, and I, you know, I, you know, Adventists as, as a church, we talk about the Ten Commandments and then 
other churches say, well, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. And then we say, well, you do because they're God's character. And I think both people are right. Um, like the Ten Commandments should be like the reminder, like kind of like if you get off track, it's like a little nudge to say, hey, clearly you're not doing things God's way because you just lied and you just stole and you whatever. But ultimately the idea is to be loving like God is loving. And if I'm if I'm constantly having to resort to like a list of rules to keep myself in order, then that should tell me that there's an issue with my heart, there, that with my general way of being that isn't in line with God's general way of being. And, and that needs to be dealt with. And so the, you know, the Bible talks about the Ten Commandments being like a mirror. Um, and that's what it is. It's not like, imagine if your face was dirty and you tried to rub the mirror on your face to clean it. Not going to help. Yeah. Um, no, you got so it exactly think, right. Yeah. And it's like we kind of – I th- and and here's another point. I think sometimes anybody who's emphasizing the law, it's like we hold that up as kind of a shield to protect ourselves from the fact that our heart doesn't naturally do those things. I think that's something to think about. Um, if we're if we're constantly walking around like a tyrant trying to get everybody to do things our way, um, then maybe we really don't believe that people can actually be changed. Well, and it's interesting. The law is mainly negative. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, mm-hmm. thou shalt not. And you said, you you know, you find out you shouldn't be doing those things. So laws in general, <clears throat> as you know, I have experience with the legislature and laws in general are that way. They deal with exception. When I say they deal with when relationships break down, that's when the law steps in. Mm. So you can't defraud somebody on a contract and you can't hit them and various other things. The relationship has deteriorated to that point. But by their nature, laws are passive. So, yeah, it's like the mirror. I always say the law is like a thermometer. It tells you you got a fever, but it won't cure your fever. (laughs) Let's change gears a little bit. Uh, I'm wondering, does it really matter where fathers go to find the answers to the ex- existential questions of life. And Josh, what do you think? Ooh, I'm going through options of how how deep to deal with that. Um, <laughs> so the answer is yes and the answer is no. Um, the reason is because if you read Romans 1 and 2, like Paul makes it pretty clear that like just by nature and just by, which is humanity and animals and all of creation, like people can relate to God because of his fingerprint, like he, you can see God through his nature to some degree. And if you respond honestly, um, to the best of your ability, according to that, then you can become, you can create, it says a law unto yourself. So like you, then God's character gets formed within you just by being honest in how you're responding to that. Right. And so, you know, like, like we were talking about Jordan Peterson earlier, like he started out as an, an atheist basically, and for the past like 10 years, I've been watching his videos and he basically became a Christian just by being honest with the data and letting it change his mind, even though he's super stubborn and, you know, is still stuck on the evolutionary theory, but he still has to admit that God probably exists. And I think, so like if you're a father and you're sincerely looking for like the most effective way to be a, a good father, um, there are tons of things in nature that are going to like wherever you go, you should be able to discern some good and bad. And at the same time, so this is kind of the caveat is there are absolutely sources that are going to be much more effective to help you become a good father. Of course, you know, I would say the Bible is a good place to go or, or other Christian men or um, honorable, trustworthy men. 
those are all good places to start. Um, but I think, I think a lot of people use many ways to shield themselves from having to admit that they're broken because that's so scary to them. So they don't get there, not because it's not, there isn't a pathway there, that, not because Jesus isn't drawing them down that pathway, but because they want to be the ruler of their own lives. They're unwilling to accept the awkwardness, the shame of admitting that they're angry and bitter and grieving and etc. So that's why I don't think they get there. Um, so that's kind of a convoluted answer. But I hope it made sense though. No, it does make sense. Cause I mean, some men might say, Oh, well I'm going to go into, let's say the military to go find myself, or I'm going to oh, join boy. this organization, or I'm going to join this club to try to find myself. So I, you know, in my mind, I've always thought, well, there must be good places and bad places to try to find those ex- the answers to those existential questions. And Ed, it sounds well, like you yes. had a thought on it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I tend to be noisy. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, first of all, this is like the question, is it possible for an atheist to be a moral person? And the answer is yes, because uh, what happens is, and I don't want this to sound pejorative, is it? but in some ways, a moral atheist is a parasite because they're following the truths that are laid out in scripture. They just think it's something that everybody knows. In fact, you hear that. Well, everybody yeah. knows you should do this or everybody knows you should do that. But history shows that that's not true. And so you may find uh, to the degree that the military helps uh Form, formulate character, and it, some people benefit by it, but also there are many who are torn down by it. Uh, but to the degree that it, it is effective, it is following principles which are, which find their ultimate source in God. Every good thing, every gift, good gift and every perfect gift is from above, we're told. And that's quite true. When you, and you can find uh, gems of truth in Plato and Aristotle and Confucius in many, many places. But if you want to go to the source where it's the clearest, you still have to go to scripture. And even there with a pure heart, because a lot of people misuse scripture. Interesting. I think God has this open invitation, uh, which is taste and see. And uh, there's so many examples where where he invites people to to try him and to just test for yourself. See for yourself that I'm good. And it's, it's an open invitation. So you don't really see that anywhere else in any other systems to that direct degree. They may borrow in some way or fashion, but like you said, there's the source spiritually right at God to find those answers, the root of those answers that does not really exist at a level at that level anywhere else. So I think that was a, a fascinating way to re- to respond to that. Josh, what do you think? Well, I mean, man, a lot. Um, but the at the end of the day, um, you know, like, let's take the evolutionary worldview, right? Uh, uh, many, uh, almost all evolutionary people are also atheists and materialistic. And they don't accept, they don't admit the fact that what has the most explanatory power and that's what kind of bit makes people become atheists often is because they see how evolution seems logical. Um, 
And I disagree with a lot of the basic assumptions they make, but if you accept some of those basic assumptions, then it seems like a math equation, right? A plus B equals C, you have to become evolutionary. I disagree with that, but that's how they get there. But then they are not accepting the fact that there's an explanatory power that is lacking, like the way you actually live your life. So if you, if you take the assumptions of a materialistic world, then somebody in a wheelchair should be the first person we kill and we shouldn't feel bad about it or children who are too weak to live on their own, or somebody who has a low IQ, or, I mean, you can make a thousand logical, you know, the whole thing of eugenics during the, 19, the 1900s. It was basically evolutionary thinking following its natural progression. That's correct. And, um, but people who disagree with that, who are evolutionary thinkers, what they're actually doing is robbing the Christian worldviews, exactly. uh, morality, and inputting it into their worldview dishonest or maybe not dishonestly but blindly it's it's it doesn't actually fit and um what actually has the most explanatory power is that there are good fathers and there are bad fathers and there are good households and there are bad households and that those good and bad things have huge amounts of overlap and themes and con continuity and that those all of those good things come from god's word the principles laid out there and they don't fit with the evolutionary model or many other models, right? Um, and so whatever has the most explanatory power of how to actually live a meaningful, good life, I think we can do that not only from the big view of like evolution versus creation or whatever, but in our day-to-day -day life of how, you know, should I scream at my wife? <laughs> you know, um, what is actually meaningful and beautiful and good? Those are the principles that God lays out. And I think if we're honest about them, God will lead us to all truth through his spirit. And I believe that completely. Ed, we'll is give it, you the last it, word on this one. Oh, dear. Well, there's a couple of <laughs> points. One, one is that, that the, uh, the one question which science and evolution can never answer, the one question is why? Hmm. They can talk about how, but why doesn't get in there? And that's the, the, those are all moral questions in the end. Why should I do this or why should I not do that? And the other thing I want I want to do is recommend a book. It's not a, it's not a Christian book. It was written by C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian, but the book is not primarily uh, sectarian or about Christianity. It's about morality. Uh, it's called the Abolition of Man, and there he shows how the uh, great moral pre precepts that we have uh, that are in Christianity are actually echoed by many other cultures. Mm. And that, well, the, the origin, is, of course, originally was with God anyway. But the point of, of this is that uh, there are things which are simply true uh, because they're true. There's, there's, no exp there's no other way of getting around it. And many cultures have recognized this. And that modern philosophies, evolution and Marxism, both, because they're quite related, try to achieve good while denying the very principles of good. Hmm. There's a lot to think about there, and I appreciate both of you being on. I wish we had more time, but we have to wrap up here. Ed, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for everything that you've shared with us, all of your viewpoints and thoughts on the subject. Josh, same for you. Thank you so much for being on and adding so much to this discussion. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for joining me. Thank you for listening.